0: Hi there and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today. Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank and today we're going to speak with Dr. Heather Cox Richardson, the author of Letters from an American, a newsletter about the history behind today's politics. That and Twitter dominate her online presence, but if you want her in print, Check out How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. She's also a professor of 19th century history at Boston College. Dr. Richardson, thanks so much for being here.
1: Oh, it's such a pleasure.
0: Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Every night, sometimes very late or early in the morning, depending on your perspective, and I know that because she and I have been sending messages back and forth on Twitter at those late hours once in a while, my email goes off, sometimes 1, 2 in the morning, and my inbox, in my inbox, is quite literally a letter from an American. Dr. Richardson sends her subscribers and posts on Facebook to 1.4 million people a recap of not only the events of the day, but of the history behind those events. So for instance, the night after the Capitol insurrection, she explained why it was significant that not only had the Capitol building been breached, but that the Confederate flag had finally made it inside and into the rotunda. We all remember that image. When and why, Dr. Richardson, did you realize that coverage of today had to also include coverage of yesterday and the day before that?
1: Well, you make it sound as if it were deliberate, but in fact, the letters from an American grew really organically. They came out of the fact that I had been for years on Facebook writing an essay about once a week to about 22,000 people. And those essays were sort of a place where I could put things that didn't have a home elsewhere in the other things I was writing. So some of them were personal essays, some were essays that were roundups, for example, of history that I really love, that, you know, naval history, for example, that nobody really seemed to care about publishing that much. But then some of them were about politics and what was happening in the political sphere. And in the summer of 2019, I was moving and I had not written since I remember the date, July 18th. And I was starting to get letters from people saying, are you okay? We miss you. You know, what's going on? And so as I say, I was moving and on September 15th of that year, I was painting my the, the house I was moving out of. I was painting the around the windows and I got stung by a yellow jacket and I'm allergic to yellow jackets. And of course, I did not have my EpiPen. Sorry about that uh, to the guy who was with me at the time and probably is still trying to recover. Um, and I I had to sit and observe how badly I was going to react to the sting. And I thought, oh, now's the time for me to go ahead and answer the people on Facebook about where I've been and, you know, sort of write an essay for them. So I sat down to do a retrospective of what had happened in America since July, since I had last written. And that was, in fact, uh, two days, September 15th was two days after we first knew that there was a whistleblower who had said there was something funny going on amongst the, the Trump administration. And so I wrote about where I thought the country was, what it looked like to me, and that there had been this message from the uh, the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, to the acting director of national intelligence saying, we know you've had a whistleblower account. We know you have not handed it over to us. And by law, you have to. And I recognize that that was the first time a member of the executive branch had accused the a member of the... Uh, I'm sorry. A member of the the legislative branch had accused a member of the executive branch of breaking an explicit law. You know, not just sort of generally you're breaking emoluments, but this is a law and you have broken it. So I wrote about that, and people wrote back in my mention in my in my comments and said, "Oh wait, explain how this works. Explain how this works." And I thought, well, you know, I, I really don't want to to flood the airwaves and be one of those people who's sort of in your face all the time. So normally I would wait a week, but people were really pretty insistent that they'd like to know more. So on the 17th, I wrote again to explain things. And that was it. The letters from an American were born. And what they were at the time was an attempt to explain all the moving pieces that were moving as quickly as they were in front of us and to explain sort of how the government works.
0: Why do you think people reacted to those early letters from an American, given the atmosphere we were in, we have to go back and remember our history that we were being inundated on almost an hourly basis, basis from the president of the United States tweeting things and all the rest of the news cycle going on minute by minute. is um, Was that environment particularly conducive to a chance to step back and say, letters from an American needs to be not just a description, but an analysis of what's going on based on the long view as opposed to every pebble flying past the window
1: you know, I don't think it was ever a conscious decision on my part to do that. That's how I see the world. Oh, look, this moment matters because the way the system is set up is because of this, which happened in 1973. That's kind of how I see things. But I think it took off because of exactly what you say. We have been bombarded with so much stuff over the past four years. And it was very difficult to to make sense of any of it. It all felt to me anyway, like everything was sort of Uh, puddle deep and you couldn't really see how one thing was connected to another and what of course connects those one things to another in, especially in our government, but basically in anything we do in this country is our history. So to be able to step back and say, okay, we have this event happening right now, but look, it builds on a bill from last year, which came from before that. And look, this is how things have changed. All of a sudden, you feel like you're standing on the ground and can see how things are changing as opposed to being buffeted back and forth.
0: During the election of 2020, you argued, I never forgot the way you put this, but you argued in your letters and on Facebook and on Twitter that the story of Donald Trump trying to retain the Oval Office was the greatest story ever told, that those who already had power and money were trying to create the conditions where they could not lose those things no matter what the voters said. The greatest story ever told, you called it. Of all the times, politicians and the powerful have tried to rig the system In their favor, for instance, when the rich lobby for tax cuts, when a president covers up a breaking of his political enemies, when a governor changes access to the ballot box to times where she thinks her supporters are more likely to vote. Why was this particular time, A, dangerous, and B, blinking red for you as a historian?
1: Because this, for two reasons. The first one was because this is the first time we had a president who was unwilling to accept the results of an election. Full stop. That, that had never happened before, and to try and overturn that election in the many ways he did, not just what happened after November, but also reaching, as, as we know now, all the way back to July of 2019, when he was trying to use uh, congressionally appropriated money to go ahead and rig the uh, the 2020 election in his favor by putting pressure on Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky. So that, that itself right there was, um, It's astonishing. I mean, it's simply astonishing. And and I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. But the other piece that makes the moment we're in so extraordinary is this is the first time in American history where we have had members of one of the two major political parties who are actively sitting in our government who are also undemocratic, who don't believe in the democratic system. Now we've had people like that in the past. We certainly had them in the nineteen I'm sorry, the eighteen fifties, but many of them uh, left when they felt that they didn't couldn't live with the demo- democratic system in the government, and the other 33 were expelled. So we did not have people making rules who were actively trying to destroy democracy, and we had it in the 1890s in a moment similar to this. But they were not a majority of one of the, the powerful parties. So this is the first time we've actually got members working against democracy. Now, what's so astonishing about all this is you mentioned the the 2020 election, and what happened with uh, the former President Trump between that election and uh, January t- uh, 20, 20th of that year, you th- when uh, Joe Biden took office, um, I really expected, I really expected, because everything had told me this is what's going to happen, that the former president would fade away. And that the the party would try and recreate itself in one fashion or another, either as a Trump party or a non-Trump party, and we would move on. It truly never occurred to me we would have what is essentially an ongoing, slow-moving coup attempt on the part of a former president. And so, you know, I think we're all at this point sort of, I won't say flying blind, because we do know the patterns of our history, but every day being just a little bit more astonished at where we find ourselves.
0: There will be some who read or listen to this interview um, or who read your letters and listen to this interview and say, oh, come on, another historian here is is trying to impose her liberal views on the rest of us. Um, What that really speaks to is the visceral reactions that people have now when they hear things that they disagree with um, or things that don't fit into the narrative they have been told By media that is now very fractured. How do we train ourselves to evaluate ideas on the merits and not have those emotional reactions to evidence based assertions, especially when the news moves so fast today?
1: Well, there are two questions inherent in that, and the first uh, that I'll answer is, this, is the, the latter of the two, and that is, what can you do when you see information that infuriates you, as it happens on all sides of the political spectrum? The first is to recognize that journalists don't write their own titles. So that's actually something to recognize that that literally is clickbait. And often a title does not represent what's in the article. And at best, it's going to be incomplete. So recognize that the headlines are are designed to set you off because that's going to make you click on it. But second, to recognize that if something really infuriates you because it seems so outlandish, that you need to dig and actually read more about it. Because most people um, are really not doing things that are that outrageous. So you need To read and make sure that whatever you're upset about really is that outrageous and nowadays there are things that that are outrageous and it's worth being able to say no we're not in some you know mix where everything is really basically okay some stuff really is not okay. But it's important to recognize that there is that that visceral reaction um, is part of our media landscape because it sells things. But the other piece of the, that, from your question, that I, that I'll answer, that I said there were two pieces. The other is that um, one of the things that that is both frustrating for me and that I try and do when I do my work, both in uh, my the history I write, but also in the letters from an American, is that. Um, I, I am not taking a modern day political stance and I get a lot of hate mail from the right. I get not insignificant hate mail from the left as well, because what I'm really doing is not trying to take a modern day political stand at all. I don't actually see the world in modern day political terms. I actually see the world from the perspective of a politician or a political scholar from the, an earlier period in America. So, you know, the, when people react to somebody like me and say, as they do, I get those letters, and I see those comments saying, oh, she's just a shill for for the the Democrats, or she's a shill for the conservatives. Um, I, I get those letters, but they're, in a way, sort of meaningless, because what I'm really trying to do is uncover the larger patterns of American democracy and how those things work. And sometimes they work in, in ways that are Uh, Probably not probably wouldn't serve the modern day Democratic Party. But right now, as you know, from my work, I don't believe the people in charge of the Republican Party are conservatives. I believe they're dangerous radicals and they are not really in the mold at all of the traditional Republican Party, which, you know, as you know, I probably know better than anybody else in this country. So there's kind of two things going on in that question.
0: We're doing something a little bit different in this episode because, yes, we are asking about history, but we're also using our time with the sort of dean of history, American history on the Internet, at least, um, to explain and to understand how we can be better consumers of the information that we are surrounded by. And to be what I learned in school was called being an active listener, an active participant. Um, You don't have to be a member of Congress to be active and to be, or a full-time journalist and to be fully immersed and to understand who's saying what and why and what the background um, to all of it is. So um, you mentioned, you mentioned how you take a look at what's going on, in the present from a completely different lens than we are trained to by the current media landscape, which is this partisan back and forth. So I wanna go to, I looked up some of your letters, um, which I've been saving in hopes of having you on the show one day. So I went back and looked at a couple of them. Um, when Mitch McConnell said, and I pulled this one out, when Mitch McConnell said, the GOP is the firewall against socialism in America. And that's something we hear about a lot from Republicans um, in Congress these days. Um, the GOP is the firewall against social, the socialism. You wrote a post about how that term socialism has been perverted over the years from its original meeting. And you describe how. So what went off inside your head that this is an important thing to explain? And what evidence did you start to draw on as you wrote a post like that?
1: That's a great question. And, um, there's two things going on in that. First of all, as we now know, the Republican Party is testing out new messaging for the 20, what year are we in? Um, 20, 20, 2020, 2021 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, right election. now, boy, yeah. Yeah, but the 2022 yeah. election. Um, and one of the things, the buzzwords that works is socialism. So they're, ro- they're rolling that out again. But the reason that so so you can look at a statement like uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's statement as just about today's politics. This is going to this is going to play well in the hinterlands. But to me, it's an enormous red flag because my second book many, many years ago was actually about Reconstruction and about how um, the North turned against um, the idea of including African-American men at that point in the body politic really dramatically in 1871, shortly after the passage of the 15th Amendment in 1870, the ratification, not passage of the 15th Amendment in 1870. And they did so at a time when the newly created Department of Justice is created in 1870 to go ahead and level the playing field among state laws uh, between the KKK and the uh, newly freed people in the American South. So they recognize, Southern reactionaries recognize in the South that they can't continue to object to African-American inclusion in society and in the body politic based on race because the Department of Justice is down there saying, "Uh uh-uh, not going to happen and arresting members of the KKK. So what happens in South Carolina in 1871 is in that period, South Carolina has a, a, a legislature that is a majority African American. And it's, it's passing legislation that is really quite reasonable, quite moderate legislation. But what happens is that South Carolinians, white reactionary South Carolinians, begin to say that uh, they don't object to black people participating in American society at all based on their race, What they're objecting to is the idea that you have all these newly freed, impoverished people, because, of course, under the laws of slavery, they couldn't actually own anything, who are voting and then legislating in such a way that they're providing for contracts for things like hospitals and schools and roads, and those are going to have to be paid for by tax dollars. And those tax dollars are going to come from the only people who have property in post-Civil War South Carolina. That's going to be white people. So they begin to argue that the idea of Black participation in voting and in the body politic is tantamount to a redistribution of wealth, and a redistribution of wealth from white people to Black people. And they call it ...socialism. And that's actually a word that has nothing to do with the international socialism that's not going to rise for another two generations. I mean, we, that really gets its teeth in the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. So... What happened then is you see this increasing argument, and and this actually takes a lot of power, and you also get the word communism in 1871, because from March through May of 1871 in Paris, the communards take over the city of Paris um, because they think the government has sold them out after the Franco-Prussian War, and so they create a commune, the Paris Commune, which uh, is headline news in America for various reasons that I could tell you about, But, but Americans become really concerned Concerned at the idea of workers taking over society and they begin to talk about communism but they're not talking about China in 1949 they're talking about Paris in 1871 and the idea of workers having a say and so when you see in America the use of the word socialism they're actually using the word socialism before it is Uh, anything other than sort of a vague concept of a redistribution of wealth. So when you get to the present and you get this repeatedly throughout our history, you see people saying, Oh, black people are socialists or communists look for example at the, uh, at the 1950s or even as late as 1970, I have a wonderful photograph that somebody lent to me from his private collection when he was driving a bug across the country, a VW bug across the country. And he stopped on the border of North Carolina in 1970 to take a picture that said, of a billboard that said, um, the Klan, this is Klan country. And then underneath it said, stop integration and communism. You know, those two things have always gone hand in hand. So when I saw once again, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell saying we're a firewall between socialism. Now, a lot of people conjure up countries that are now socialist countries, countries like Venezuela. America has never done that. And America is so far from being a socialist country right now. Um, I won't say we're a fascist country because we're actually not. If you're a political scientist or somebody who studies politics, you know that we actually don't have all the hallmarks of fascism. But we come very well, we don't even come close. We are an oligarchic society, which is about as far from socialism as you can get. So that was a moment when it just every time I see somebody in the moment saying and I, and I actually know people who are big Trump supporters saying, well, we're going down the road to socialism and, and we need to go back to the 1950s. And I always say under Eisenhower. And they're like, yeah. And they're like, and I'm like, when the top income tax bracket for Americans was 91%. And they're like, dead silent, you know, crickets. So that's why that that particular thing jumped out to me, because it doesn't make sense. If you think about America today as part of world socialism, I mean, oh, come on. But, um, but that's where it comes from. And that's why actually, I wrote the the history of the Republican Party when I kept seeing people holding up signs when Obama was elected saying, you know, there's a a socialist in the White House. And I'm like, where? Where? Quick, show me, because I don't know any socialists left in the world.
0: (laughs) You did a post in February of 2020 that argued the helplessness some feel while following politics is actually not the fault of the hopeless, but that it is the byproduct of a purposeful campaign of disinformation to make people feel that way? Why was it important for people to know that? And how does being armed with knowledge help us avoid hopelessness?
1: You know, it's so funny because you're reading this stuff back to me. And as you know, I write in the middle of the night and I do have another (laughs) full-time job. So I'm like, God, that sounds really good. I'm thinking, (laughs) I I don't remember You should put that that. in
0: your next newsletter. There you go,
1: there you go. Although I did have to read through some of them recently and I will say some of them really sing and others really don't. I mean, let's be honest.
0: <laughs> I love them all.
1: But so, um, So one of the things that was very interesting to me about the Republican Party and studying the Republican Party. So I've written six books, all of which glance on the Republican Party in one way or another. And one is a history of that party because you can't really understand American politics, especially that of the 19th century without understanding the Republicans. But so when the Republican Party took the turn it did in the 1990s, really on the heels of the Reagan revolution in the the 1990s, you get the rise to power of Newt Gingrich and what were known as the Gingrich revolutionaries. And they did a number of things to the party that were really interesting for a scholar. They were less uh, exciting for a person who was living in this country. But they started to create a, a, a bubble that was impermeable and that was deliberately constructed through the use of language. so if you if anybody wanted to, you could actually google, um, the, the, the name Newt Gingrich and then PAC, P-A-C, and then language, because he actually, a PAC, a political action committee that was associated with Gingrich, literally sent around to newly elected Republican members of Congress, a list of words to use to describe the Republicans and a use, list of words to describe the Democrats. And you can imagine what that looks like. Um, Gingrich also went ahead and the people with him went ahead and pur- tried to purge the party of those they called rhinos Republicans in name only. And it was a really interesting moment because it was actually the opposite. They were the rhinos. They were the radicals purging the traditional Republicans out of the party. But so it was an interesting moment for me who studies politics and the way people think about politics, which is really what I study, because it was clear that language and um, and mythology was becoming an image was becoming far more important than reality, which had always been the case under the Reagan years, but certainly under that moment. But what was really interesting about that was that the language that the Republican extremists used from the 1990s on very, very closely mirrored the language of domestic abuse. And this is before Trump. I mean, people saw it with Trump, but the person who really really jumped out with for me was um, was, uh, Ted Cruz. Uh, When Ted Cruz, and actually what got me thinking about this was, as you know, I do some indigenous history as well. And I was looking at the congressional language surrounding the... Trail of Tears the the Indian Removal Act of 1830 and in that I was looking at that the same week that some football player was dragged uh was caught on video dragging his girlfriend out of an elevator by her hair I don't remember who these I, I are. forget
0: the name also but the video went everywhere I yeah I it know it's a famous guy I don't I, I think I know who it is but I don't want to say it without knowing 100% but I I'm in no
1: danger of knowing who either of them is. <laughs> but, um, but the la- it was really interesting to me because the language that people were using to talk about that situation was the same as I was seeing in Congress about the indigenous people, when white congressmen were talking about indigenous people and how this was for their own good, this would help them behave, they were being, you know, the, the reason that they were being treated this way is because the, the congressmen had been forced to it, you know, all that language. So I started getting very into that and it jumped out at me when Ted Cruz did an interview with some uh, reporter, and I can't remember who it was, and the, the the person it was a man said offhand, "Well, you know, when you shut down the government," and Ted Cruz looked at the camera and he said, "I didn't do that," and the reporter said, "Well, on this date," and and you know, and 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 Cruz said, "I didn't do that," and of course he had, and. And the, the reporter starts laughing and he goes, Well, we, we can't do this conversation then. And Cruz goes, Well, that's your version of what happened, but that actually never happened. And that is like textbook gaslighting.
0: Gaslighting. Yeah.
1: So, so when, when, um, if you if you if you go and study the language and the psychology of that sort of language, as I did after that, I spent a couple of years actually working on concepts of language and narrative and politics. One of the key aspects that you see, and you can see this in Hannah Arendt, you can see this in even um, well, I'm not going to talk about him, even in people like. Um, uh, like Eric Hoffer, uh, Joseph Heller, um, certainly George Orwell, all of whom are taking a look at how language destabilizes politics. What they talk about is the importance for the rise of, of, of authoritarian governments for people to stop believing in anything. It's not that they want you to believe lies necessarily, although that's useful. They want you to stop believing in anything, because as long as there's no ground under you, you are completely helpless. And that's you the same hands. thing. You throw throw your your hands
0: up. up and you say, whatever happens, happens.
1: And, and you're frightened. I mean, again, and that, that goes back to the language of the, the, this, the same pattern of domestic abuse where somebody gets com- so completely overwhelmed that they can't even grocery shop because they're like, I don't, I don't know, am I in trouble? Am I not in trouble? Did I do this? Did I not do this? What's really happening? They lose control of reality. And so as you see this again and again now in our political discourse where people are denying things we know are true... Um, you can see this, for example, with the rewriting of what happened in January on January 6th. Oh, it was tourists. You know, they were hugging and kissing the police. Well, yeah, with baseball bats, you know. And and it's really important to remember it, yeah, they're trying to get you not to believe what happened, but more importantly, they're trying to pull the rug out from under you altogether so you stop caring. And that's an old psychological technique, by the way, that was perfected by the KGB in the US in the old USSR.
0: They're Right now, and I'm looking something up, so if you hear typing, it's because I wanted to pull up a quote that I just love from JFK, but right now we are awash in conspiracy theories. There are conspiracy theories all over the internet, and people look at them on Facebook, and um, they come out to you in real life, and they tell you, well, I heard this or that or the other thing about the vaccine, or I heard this or that about the other thing about uh, uh, you know the election or fraud, and that was one of the main um, ways in which President Trump fostered um, the disbelief in the election was basically just saying, "I heard this about the way the vote count went down. This was a, uh, you know, this this is something we should look into." But it really was a conspiracy theory. And so I want to read this quote, and I'm glad I found it um, in the nick of time here. This is from JFK. I don't know what year, but um, it, this is what President Kennedy said. There have always been those fringes of society who have sought to escape their own responsibility by finding a simple solution, an appealing slogan, or a convenient scapegoat, convinced that the real danger comes from within. They look suspiciously at their neighbors and their leaders. They call for a man on horseback because they don't trust the people. They find treason in our finest churches, in our highest court, and even in the treatment of our water. So with that quote in mind, as you well know, conspiracy theories are the tool of the hopeless because they're a signal that none of us have the responsibility and that this man on horseback, as the president said, is on its way to save us. So when we see conspiracy theories online, keeping in mind that quote, being pushed by our friends or even by people we love, what is the right way to engage? What do we do?
1: Well, I love that Kennedy quote, because he's clearly referring to the movement conservatives who have taken over the Republican Party, which is sort of fun. And I suspect when he says man on horseback, he's referring to Barry Goldwater, um, which would be interesting, certainly in that era. So one of the things about conspiracy theories that um, that is going to sound, sorry, but out of left field, is that we often get conspiracy theories at times of extraordinary technological change, uh, times of unsettled change as well. So we get a lot of them in the 1890s, and we tend to forget it. But, but in the 1890s in America, for example, there were a whole bunch of messiahs. Now, they've been written out of history, because I guess because it didn't pan out. But um, if you were reading the newspapers in the 1890s, you would have um, Jesus reincarnated or one form or another of messiah reincarnated with some frequency in local newspapers. And the, the reason that I say that this is kind of a reflection of technology is that in a way, it's kind of exciting, like anything could be possible. And another thing that happens, of course, in the 1890s is the idea that you can talk to the dead and people are like, oh, that's crazy. You know, of course, that couldn't happen. And, and, and you know, there were all sorts of seances and all sorts of things like that. Well, think about it in the the before the civil war you get the idea of the telegraph which is going to take information over long distances by the end of the 19th century you have telephones you can pick up an object in one place and talk to somebody in another that is absolutely unthinkable uh, to the generation before it so is it that big a leap to think that you could pick up a telephone and talk to your dead grandmother I mean, no. It turns out you can't. But how are you supposed to know that that isn't going to happen?
0: I wish so, I could, though. But yeah.
1: Well, but but that's just <laughs> it. So yeah, much of right. what we do is is funded by what or is is fed by what we would like to have happen. So one of the things about QAnon, for example, with all the fact that it draws from anti-Semitism and racism and um, all the terrible things it draws from, there is an impulse within it to protect children. Now I think it's an impulse that has been misused by people who directed QAnon um, and who I think are terrified. I shouldn't say that. I don't have any insight, but the fact that Q has not spoken since December suggests that uh, Q might have be rethinking um, what what he hath wrought, but. Uh, But in a time when Americans feel that they're no longer in control, that they can't protect their families, that the world is big and frightening and and nobody seems to be on their side, is it that's the biggest surprise we have QAnon out there? Um, And and what do you say? I think you simply um, uh, try and reiterate what is healthy Uh, a healthy interaction with the world where you do rely on science and on common sense. And is it gonna get everybody to come back to earth? No, but it might at least help some people to stop from being diverted into what is virtually at this point a cult.
0: I had a professor who, um, a brilliant man who um, I talk to still pretty frequently. And he always says, just ask questions. Show me, where did you hear that? Why do you think that person might be saying that? I think questions are a really helpful thing. Um, So I encourage people when they ask me, how do I deal with conspiracies? I always say, um, just keep asking questions of the people who push them. And eventually, you know, as you said, they may not be able to be brought back, but at least you've pushed them further towards the ball of figuring out where these things are coming from. Um, Here's another topic. How do we combat efforts to change history, to gaslight, as you just put it? Um, even before January 6th was over, there were claims that it wasn't done by who it was done by. After 9-11, there was a successful push to link that to Iraq. After a mass shooting, there are efforts to link it to mental health or to a certain group of people um, or what have you. The Civil War was, as, and you've written extensively about this, the Civil War was not about slavery. It was about states' rights. How do we fight that effort? in our own minds, when we see the history changing right in front of our face. And we know it's something that, um, we know that it was different than it's being described to us.
1: I'm just going to clarify what you said there. You were saying that the Civil War was not about slavery, about states' rights, because that's what people say. The Civil War was, in fact, very much about slavery. Oh, which no, I know that's,
0: was, yeah, th- yeah. Th- that's what I'm
1: saying. I know, it just came out the other way, and I don't want someone mean listening that. to this. Yeah, I know. I you know, but. That. But I just didn't want someone listening to this to think, oh, Axel says, you know. (laughs) I I definitely
0: (laughs) understand that the Civil War was about slavery.
1: So that's actually a really interesting question. And I'm going to throw an an example back to you. I think it was October of 2019, I think. And um, the the last uh, investigation of Hillary Clinton's use of the email server had come out. And I read that report as I always read the reports um, because I, I like them. That's what I do for a living. I, I that's actually my, Don't my fun. That. Time. Don't admit that. Don't no, admit. Well, you know, people I'm think kidding. they're so off-putting, and they're really not. I mean, the in, weirdly, they tend to put the indexes in the front, so you think you're going to about to read a manual, and then you actually get to the words, and they're fine. It's when they try and tart it up for the public that I find them very confusing. When they're all in different fonts and their yeah. pictures and everything, it's like yeah. I can't follow anything. But so I read the thing and it said that there had been mishandlings as there always are of uh, classified information. You know, somebody leaves, goes to the bathroom and leaves the door unlocked or, um, you know, leaves a window open, which is apparently a no-no. And I don't remember now what the examples were, but apparently this is really quite common. Um, but there were no major breaches and they got their wrist slapped for that, but there were no major breaches and the case was closed. And so I read that and I thought, okay, well, I, and I wrote about that. And then I read the news the next day and every major news organization was like, oh, they got Clinton on this and they got Clinton on that. And I was like, I was mortified. I remember where I was and I thought I have misled everybody. I must have misread the report. And so, and and then I had to find the report again, which is not easy to find. It's, it actually was pretty buried and I'm good at finding stuff. And um, so I read it again and I thought, no, no, I read these things for a living what i read the first time was right and what is out there is wrong but what was interesting is the degree to which i with you know a phd from harvard and 30 years experience reading this report read it in seven or eight different places that i was wrong and my reaction was not those people are idiots my reaction was i must be mistaken and i think the answer to what you're saying is really important in this moment and that's that there are things that are true. Everything is not relative. There are things that happen. There are moral values that individuals hold. Those things are true. And when somebody says, you didn't see what you saw, Go back to to where you were. This is one of the reasons that Sarah Kenzie, or when Trump first was elected, said, write down what you think because you're you're gonna slide away from the norm. And we have absolutely done that. But to recognize that you probably, you know, maybe you need to check where you were and, and to to look into whether or not you might have been mistaken about something, but not to get swayed by what you are hearing politically about uh, what people want you to believe now. No, the Confederate flag was in our Capitol building, which has never happened before in American history, even during the American civil war. And that was not tourists. You know, it was not tourists who went and beat up 140 police officers. It was not, uh, you know, just, just a question of opinion when, um, uh, or of something that, that nobody should take seriously when, um, uh uh, the lawyer powell Sidney powell kept talking about how the election had been stolen and they were all that those things matter and they were real and that's part of pushing back against disinformation there are fundamental truths both in our um in our society things happen but also in communities you have friends you have loved ones, and those bonds are real and they matter no matter what somebody tells to you about whether or not the Republican or the Democrat who lives next door is dangerous to you. You know better than the person coming, in so- coming from outside telling you to hate someone.
0: One of the things we hear all the time, and I hear it as my, in my job as a reporter when I meet people out on the street, people say to me, ah, oh, things have never been this bad things have never been this bad. Um, I guess A, have things, <laughs> is that true? Um, what, what do you say to people who, who say that to you and they point out things like lack of cooperation between the parties because there are no common ideals, or January 6th, they look at mass shootings, they look at low wages, they look at the difficulties out there. Um, what do you say to people who say times have never been this bad? Um, a, is that true? And B, what other times can you point to where that feeling was had? Because it's certainly in my reading, it comes up all the time.
1: So I want to reiterate that we have never had a major political party within our government working against democracy. That's new, unprecedented, not okay, causing, uh, 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 causing us to face the world in a whole different way. So that's new. That's different. There's no precedent for that in America. Um, the, the precedent of the 1850s into 1860, again, is you had a group like that, but they left. They didn't stay and try to make law. Um, and there, if you care, there's a little bit of a caveat for a congressional session in 1879, but that's kind of in the weeds. But have we ever been this torn up as a society? Sure. Um, the 1850s, of course, is the obvious one, but the one I like to point to is the 1890s, because in the 1890s, you also had, you had uh, enormous stresses, racial stresses in the country, um, gendered stresses in the country, but also the stress of the fight between labor and capital. And so in 1886, I think it was, there were some extraordinary numbers of strikes that were broken by police, usually by killing people. And you, of course, are going to have beginning in the 18 in 1889 to 1890, a resurgence of the um, lynching that had been kind of driven underground after the early 1870s. And that's going to take off between 1890 and at least 19, the 1941, um, just hugely not only among the black population, but also Mexican Americans, and also um, even some some uh, Italian Americans. So the the truth is that America has these periods, and they are usually driven by extremes of wealth. When people feel like they can't feed their families, they tend to turn on their neighbor and blame him rather than blaming the system. Um, And you see this, as I say, in the 1890s, you see it again in the 1930s. But the other side of that is that after a period of enormous dissension and fighting amongst ourselves, we have in the past managed to come together now and, and to, to create very, a very progressive society and a society that offers to bring equality quality of opportunity to a lot more people than it had in the past. Now, we've never actually accomplished that. Uh, but But one of the things about this moment that I find enormously exciting is the mix of all the new voices we have, both the young people, uh, the black people, the brown people, and women actually saying, hey, it's our country too, let's try and figure out a way to make it more equitable, actually offers the opportunity to create something entirely new. So I think that's one of the reasons that you see an attempt to control how we talk about our history, who gets to have a voice, who gets to vote, who sits in Congress, the, the idea that our Congress is so old the packing of the courts all those sorts of things on the one hand you have people trying desperately to cling to power but on the other side you have what seems almost to be a tidal wave saying if we can simply get democracy through this channel we have the opportunity to create something that's really quite new and quite exciting and for a lot of people who find this moment frightening and it is frightening and a lot of people are like, "You know, I don't want to hear what, and you can fit in your favorite um boogeyman in the the line that I just left open there. I don't want to do whatever that Congress person says. Um, it might be worth to try. you know you you just don't know where where great creativity is going to come from, And I find that actually quite exciting, and I'm old.
0: <laughs> come on, you can go or uh, we can go and anyone can go to washington d c and look at these monuments, um, look at monuments to, to people who are considered, um, at least in some ways, great Americans, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln. Um, I want to know who, over the course of American history, and maybe it's one of those three, but maybe there are some others that you can tell us about, who stood up for democracy and was its staunchest defender when it was at most in
1: peril. Abraham Lincoln. When you think about, when I think about Lincoln, which I do every single day, I think of him as the great defender of democracy. Because what happens in the 1850s is we get the country being taken over by oligarchs. And the the people at the time are very clear about this. Uh, And the word oligarch is all over the literature of of the 1850s. And what happens is they come, the Southern elite slave owners come to believe that they really are better than other people and that they really, the country really will be best if they run things. And the most, most people are kind of dull and stupid and they kind of, you know, they're, they like to dance and they're loyal and they're strong, but they really need to be directed by their betters. And their betters are people who have money and education and connections and fine homes. And the society needs to be structured in such a way that wealth produced by the the people at the bottom moves up to those people at the top, and that's articulated very, very clearly in 1858 by James Henry Hammond on the floor of the Senate. He's a Southern uh, a senator from South Carolina, and it has a very interesting, horrific backstory himself. But Lincoln rises up to that and says no democracy depends on people having equal access to resources including education and an equal access to the political system and society moves forward best not when you move everything to the top but when the the government in fact supports people at the bottom not by by giving them special favors necessarily, but by guaranteeing that everybody has equal access to resources, including education, and is equal before the law. So one of the things that worries him most is, of course, human enslavement in the American South, but also the advent of the foreign miners tax, for example, in California, which says that foreign miners from either Mexico or Chile or or asia uh, have to pay taxes that white americans don't or the idea that asian americans can't testify in court in california or the fact that that uh, massachusetts and i believe new york are passing legislation that say that irish americans aren't equal to white americans and so when he goes to to fight the civil war he begins to fight that war solely to try and repair the rift between the, the Uh, the Confederate States of America and the United States of America and to bring the country back together. And the central question at the time is, can you do that? Can you split up the union? And he says, no, you can't. But by 1873, he is beginning to say that what America really is about is not the resolution of this rift in such a way that it returns that elite to power so they can go ahead and continue to control things. Rather, it is the idea of a government of the people, by the people, and for the people that protects the rights for everybody. And that is the first real articulation of that as the centerpiece of what it means to be an American. He deliberately reaches for the Declaration of independence four score and seven years ago our fathers brought forth on this country on this continent a new nation he's pointing not to the the um constitution which was later than 1776 but rather and and protected human enslavement instead he's focusing on the declaration of independence so but to articulate that and then to uh to fight a war for that and to bring Americans who probably didn't like the black people in the South or the the black people in their midst, and certainly didn't necessarily like immigrants, to bring them along behind that as a concept of America really is a rebirth. And one of the things that fascinates me about Lincoln is, I think when we look at characters like that, and if you if you told me I couldn't have Lincoln and I'd have to have somebody else, I'd take Fannie Lou Hamer, which seems like a huge jump, but but she the one of the big jumps reasons that I would say her and the other person that I think about a lot in these terms is Booker T. Washington, is because they put everything on the line. It's really easy to sit off the front lines and to sort of mouth platitudes about what's good or what's bad or how we're not doing enough or how we're not doing that. Lincoln... I don't know if you're allowed to use profanity on this, but he damn near killed himself and ultimately gave his life for that cause. And Fannie Lou Hamer did the same thing. And, and Booker T. Washington is another one that, that I've studied a lot and find fascinating because he was an incredibly intelligent man. He could have done anything he wanted with his life. He certainly could have moved out of the South. And instead, every day, as I've said elsewhere, he walked the walk. He got out of bed and he walked out his front door knowing he could be killed for what he was doing. And that, to me, is the kind of heroism in America that makes me want to do the things that really make a difference. You know, somebody like Sitting Bull, who literally puts his life on the line to try and protect his people. And I came when I was writing my book on wounded knee to believe that that's really what heroism is, is doing the right thing, even though, you know, the doors are closing in and Lincoln did that to protect democracy.
0: What indications are there from a historical perspective that America's institutions are strong?
1: Well, they've endured for a long time, but I think one of the things that we are all worried about now and and when i say all that's really not as vague as it sounds like one of the things to do is watch the historians and come on we can't agree on where to have lunch but historians pretty much across the board are putting red you know fire alarms all over this particular moment because we have a moment where our systems do not in fact reflect the the will of the people. And that's simply unsustainable. You know, this is exactly what happened in the American South after the Civil War when the Democrats created a one-party straight state and destroyed democracy there. That was not sustainable. And the same is true now in this moment. So what sa- signs do we have that this is going to endure? For me, one of the that our systems will endure. For me, one of the signs is the number of people who care. The number of people who are saying, "Wait a minute." I care about representation, how do we make that happen? And wanting to know how the electoral college works and wanting to know how it changed so dramatically in the 1800s and and how it got capped in excuse me in 1929 or wanting to know why it is that the senate is set up in such a way that 50 Republicans have the same say as 50 Democrats when the Democrats represent 41 million more people than they than the Republicans do. Wanting to know, you know, how it can be that we can get presidents who don't win the popular vote. Actually taking a look Not necessarily at the specific institutions, although they're doing so, but taking a look at how we can make them more representative. And that, I think, is a really healthy sign for a democracy.
0: Here's one thing I want to ask, and I've wanted to ask this for a long time to really any of the historians we've had here, but I guess I never got around to it. Um, Does e-communication and the fact that all these politicians now are doing everything on computer or potentially text message or even on apps that make messages disappear, um, are, are you concerned about the future of our ability to do history with these letters technically um, or messages locked up in someone's device that you then can't go as a historian out and find an archive somewhere or pull them out of someone's basement when they pass away?
1: I do worry about that, but uh, there's always been a problem with doing history, and that's that we we think about the past Um You have to remember that anything we have left over from the past has already been culled or curated in certain ways. And that's the real problem for anybody who's running a library is figuring out what to keep, what to curate. And so we're going to be missing a lot of things. It's true, but we also have the ability to save a lot more than we had the ability to do before. So in some ways, we'll have a more complete picture. Think, for example, of, um, well, I was going to say the January 6th insurrection, but we have a better example of that, and that's the murder of George Floyd. Um, if one of the things that I always think about when we talk about the attacks on um, our black and brown population by law enforcement officers, which itself is a really interesting story, is that it's not new. You know, there are plenty of cases where you can say something here is not okay, but there wasn't any visual record of it. And the fact that we have so many people out there now with cell phones recording things changes dramatically the way we understand our history. And so we certainly we will lose things. But we also have a lot more more importantly perhaps is that what we have is going to make us see things differently than we have in the past and it's just something we're going to have to learn to to recognize that we have some stuff and we don't have other stuff
0: what's next for your project i i remember when you and i first started messaging or whatever you said oh i'll do this until the election oh i'll do this 100 days, I'll give Biden 100 days and I'll sail off into the sunset and go on a vacation to Florida or to an island somewhere. And now here we are and we are, we're not, we're outside that 100 days right now of President Biden's administration and you're still putting stuff out every day. Uh, Dare I ask, uh, how many days are you going to go here on this?
1: Well, you're actually the second in two days to ask me that question. (laughs) And I think the answer is that, first of all, as I think I just said, I truly did not foresee the big lie. I did not foresee the ongoing crisis in our democracy. I truly didn't. I mean, there are a number of things that, of course, I do see, but there are a number of things I don't see. And this one, if you had put me in a room and said, you can't come out until you uh, you grapple with this concept, I'd be like, I can't grapple this concept because it's just not possible you know, and how wrong was I? So right now, and I don't know the answer to that, you know, this is a, it is an extraordinary time commitment. And um, there have been rumblings among certain members of my family that this is not perhaps the best thing for my health. but right now i'm in it to get us past this crisis in democracy and i the, the letters started organically and i really think they're going to end organically i think the moment will come when all of us myself included will say we don't really need these anymore and when that happens i feel like it's going to have a natural death remember it's not not this is not my day job so this is not something i'm trying to spin out into you know my career as a journalist for the rest of my life i'm not a journalist i have i am a tenured professor at a university and um, and actually kind of would like to write books again. So I think we'll know it when we see it. And if it happened tomorrow, nobody would be happier than me, but I don't think it's going to.
0: How long do you spend on it per day? How many have you done so far also?
1: Uh, I've written every single night since the 17th of September. So I call it the 15th because the 16th, I'm, I'm sort of giving myself a pass. And uh, 16th of, 15th of September, 2019, and I figure figure I don't keep a record i I try to max out at twelve hundred words occasionally on the end days of Trump, sometimes I went as high as fourteen, but I figure on average thumbnail a thousand words a night, so you do the math that's uh, is that a year and a half almost two years now?
0: yeah, it's a year and a half yeah it's it's a so, year and three quarters almost yeah so
1: what what's that five hundred thousand words,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: Everyone keeps saying, publish the letters. I'm like, I don't think you understand what you're asking because that's volume after volume after volume after volume. But they take, um, I would say on average, four to five hours. But some uh, some I can whip off in three hours. And, uh, and depending on when I do them, if I'm really on a roll, sometimes they go really well. And uh, some of the ones that were just basically news roundups at the end of the Trump administration, there was one it took 14 hours and that's that's just not sustainable
0: um uh do you just sit there watching news all day do you just stare at twitter all day or do you have a system in place to figure out what the heck is going on in the world without having to keep tabs 24 hours a day
1: depends on the day a lot of the time i look at twitter all the time just to see what's happening but as you know a few stories jump out What I then do in the evening is I do a quick search of probably 12 different major newspapers or blogs. There's a lot of really good blogs out there and I see what they think is important. Uh, What they think is important is often not what I think is important because again, these are not, these are not journalistic roundups. I'm trying as a friend of mine said to write history in the present tense to see if I'm writing for a historian in 150 years. So for example, the night, two nights ago, when the story broke about the um, the Australian uh, and FBI cyber hack, um, I'm sorry, the the phones that were being used by the criminals around the world, that just jumped out to me as this is a really huge deal. And it it didn't get traction, much traction, until the next day for a lot of people. But I looked at that and I'm like, they got 27 million emails that are gonna that's gonna be a web like like nobody's ever seen, and it's absolutely going to pull in politicians. And I, I'm not saying that because I have any particular politicians in mind. I'm saying you don't have that much criminal activity without hitting some government somewhere. So um, so sometimes I will look through the news and I'll see something that is clear to me it's going to be a big deal. Um, and then other stuff, people will say, you know, what, there, pe- lots of people were like, why didn't you write about Kanye West when he was running for president? And I'm like... He doesn't have a committee, and he hasn't filed paperwork. And until those two things happen, I'm not going to do it. Yesterday, there was a story that went through uh, that the Senate had passed a, a, a bill um, to invest in science and to push back against Chinese technology and Chinese uh, power, the uh, increasing Chinese power. And I, st- I actually wrote a paragraph about that, and I went, "Oh, wait a minute! It only passed the Senate." If it's going to change in the house, I, you know, I wouldn't put this in a, in a history books yet. So then I look through all that material and then I uh, tend to do an outline of the stories I think are important. And then, um, I try and figure out what the story, what the story is that connects them all. And then I write it. And as I write it, I have, uh, an, uh, a volunteer editor and, uh, um, a copy editor who, I when I'm about two thirds done, I put the letter into Google Docs and they comment on it and they say, um, "Hey, what about this story?" And I say, "Ah, oh, here's why I didn't do it," or um, the the copy editor <laughs> uh, has got me at this point so nervous about commas that. Like I panic now when I have to add a comma because she nails commas every time, and so there's one day I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do it right today, and I put a comma in between every single word in a paragraph. and I'm like, you just pick the ones you like, you
0: know. We're, we're all nervous <laughs> about to, commas, to be fair. Oh my god, we're all nervous used about to be, commas.
1: I used to be decent at them. And now it's like, oh my God, do I put a comma here? Or do I not put a <laughs> comma here? And that's most of what her comments are, her comments But she also fact checks me, which is really helpful because for some reason, for love nor money, I cannot spell Lindsey Graham's name. And she catches me every single time. It's with an E. I know. I right. know that. Yeah. Intellectually, Lindsay I spell Graham. it with an A every single time. Yeah, Lindsey just... Graham. Yeah.
0: Um, I don't know who she is, but great job because I'm I actually was wondering because I'm like, man, these letters are really finely copy edited. Um, you mentioned, and I, I'm, I'm going to let you go, but but um, where are these letters going to go eventually? Do you envision them just living on a website somewhere? Do you envision them living on Facebook? Do you envision putting them into? I guess you said you don't want to publish them into a giant volume. So, um, w- what is the historical? Well. What What is the document going to look like once you say the letters for an American have died, as you put it, their natural death, and here they sit? Where will they sit?
1: So uh, the Wayback Machine contacted me, and they are archiving them, which is great, uh, which is which is a wonderful thing. I have not given a huge amount of thought to this, but my plan down the road is that I would like to have a full set of the volumes for myself because it's essentially my life. You know, I can I can actually put my life between covers of since September fifteenth of two thousand nineteen, and I'd like one for my brothers and sisters and my children and you know anybody who wants one. But it's going to be self published. At least I envision it as self published. I hope to do a short group a volume of the best of them, which I think might be of interest. I don't have any idea what that would look like. And then I'm open. I mean, I I am quite serious that I intended this to be a document for historians in the future, where if you know your history, you know that often when we're studying the South during the Civil War, we go to Mary Chestnut. and Or if you're looking at the North during the war, you look to George Strong, or you're looking to the late 19th century, you go to Rutherford B. Hayes, who kept a diary as well. so i'm hoping it will be of use for historians at some point and that of course is one of the reasons that i use notes in all of them is that i want people to understand i'm not making it up when they read them today but i also i'm always thinking of that person writing the dissertation in the year 3000 going where did she find that piece of information? And me being, it's right here. You know, you can get to bed a half an hour earlier tonight. Right. So I hope that some, we find a home. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I hope they find a home somewhere for people to actually, you know, do some some searches and be able to see when I talked about Manafort and why. And it's, it's interesting how many of the same names keep coming up.
0: When uh, I hear the names Mary Chestnut, all I can think of is the way they, whoever read the letters for the, documentary the what's his name ken burns documentary all i can think of is the way they said mary chestnut at the end <laughs> of it and we'll need to get someone to, to voice you and say dr heather cox richardson
1: <laughs> well um, that's a weird thought though isn't it that someday people are are going to take the word of you know, this woman who's sitting on the coast of maine as the picture of america in this moment and and I just find that absolutely bizarre, and yet in a funny way, because I have my feet in so many different worlds, maybe I'm not a bad, a bad interlocutor, if you will, of this historical moment.
0: Well, we could certainly do a lot worse, I'll tell you that. Um, uh, I'll, I'll say it this way. Dr. Heather Cox Richardson, author of Letters from an American, a newsletter about the history behind today's politics, and also the author of the book, How the South Won the Civil War oligarchy, democracy, and the continuing fight for the soul of America. Thanks so much for being here.
1: It was a real pleasure. I'm glad we finally got to do this.
0: It was awesome. Uh, Check out the newsletter, check out the book, check out her very incredible Twitter feed that just goes and goes and goes. That's at HC underscore Richardson. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page. To ask for your support in keeping the show going, go to patreon.com slash history. We are going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Bank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now or their newsletters matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.